Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 109. Psalm 109. When I was in middle school and high school, people have their own sports. Some it's baseball, some it's volleyball, some it's football. For me, my sport was wrestling. I was a wrestler. For some reason, people are often surprised when I tell them that. I don't understand why. But when I was a wrestler, there was the, the wrestling team is a certain breed of individuals. And there was a guy on my team. We'll say his name was Marcus. He was a good wrestler. And the reason he was good is because he was tough, he was strong, and he was mean. He was mean. He was really, really mean. There was a part of him, I feel like, that got enjoyment out of hurting his opponents instead of just pinning them. And one of the ways that people knew he was mean is he, he would pick on people. He would bully people. He would name call. He would push people. And one of those people was myself. In middle school and high school, for I think it was roughly three or four years, this guy teased me, he picked on me, he, he bullied me. He was mean. But he was bigger than me. There's nothing I could do. And so I did what any reasonable middle schooler or high schooler would do. I stuffed it. I stuffed the feelings. I didn't talk about them. I didn't deal with them. I didn't talk with him. I didn't try to resolve things. I just stuffed it, and I got angry about it. Angry and angry and angry. Fast forward to my junior year of high school. He was a senior, a year older than me. He wasn't as much stronger than me than I was at that point. We were more evened out. I had grown, and I had built muscle as I kind of grew, and it took one day, just a normal day at wrestling practice, like any other, running drills, wrestling, and trying to get better and, and nail the techniques. And in the midst of practice, as I was practicing with Marcus, it took one intentional slap in my face to take all of that anger that had been built up over three years to finally make its way out. And it made its way out in the form of, I grab him, I throw him to the ground, I get on top of him, and I begin to start to punch him. Now, those of you who know me, I'm not a fighter. I'm not really a fighter, so I didn't fully know what I was doing. My decision-making part of my brain was no longer active, and the, the instinct, the, the fight-or-flight part of my brain was very active. I felt heat in my head, and I felt this almost sweet relief that just for a few precious moments before the coach easily pulled me off of him, where I felt like I was getting him back. Years of pain and frustration was finally getting paid for. Revenge is sweet. The coach pulled me off of him, forced me out of practice, told me to blow off some steam. I did whatever. I blew, I blew off steam, I guess. At the end of practice, everybody goes to the locker room and begins to change and shower to go home. But I get called to the coach's office. 
And I go into the office, and the coach and the assistant coach are sitting there, and they, they look at me and they say, what in the world was that, though they did not use as kind of language? And I began to explain to them, also without that kind of language, the three years of built-up anger and frustration, and I was just getting him back, and he deserved it. And I finally got to show him what happens when you do something like that. And the coach, the coaches were silent for a moment, and then one of them spoke up and said very simple words that I don't know if I'll ever forget. He said, I get it. Don't do it again. Get out of here. I feel like there's a part of all of us that understands and in some way connects with what the coach said. I get it. We get it. There's a part of all humans that hates evil. There's a part of all of us that hates when bad things happen, when people get hurt unintentionally, when bullies pick on the smaller kids. There's a part of us that strongly dislikes that. And I think that that's a part of us that God gives us. That's the justice in us, the desire to make things right, for things to be good. But with that, we have to be careful. Because while we have a desire for seeing evil destroyed, if we're not careful, we will be destroying or trying to destroy or becoming the thing that we're trying to destroy. And allow me to make a distinction in terms right now. I'll make the suggestion that there's a very fine line between pursuing justice that is good and from God and revenge that is selfish and from sin. And if we're not careful, we confuse the two. And that confusion is amplified when we think of people that may not like us or we think of people that we may not like. When we think of people that have said things about us, have hurt us, have damaged our reputation or even damaged us physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually, the Bible refers to those as our enemies. And allow me to air quote enemies, because I think many times we assume we have more enemies than we actually have. But what I want to do is I want to talk about how we are supposed to know the difference between pursuing a good justice and a, a bad revenge. And I think one of the best ways to pursue that question is by looking to the genre of the Psalms that, is, that you have opened up in your Bibles. It's, are you in, in Psalm 109? I hope you are. Because Psalm 109 is a great example of the genre of the Psalms that we're going to be studying today. The genre, if you haven't heard this word, that's okay. It's not a normal word. But the genre of Psalms we're going to be studying today is something called imprecatory Psalms. Let me say it again. Imprecatory Psalms. Now, if you're a normal person, you may say, what in the world does that mean? You're welcome. Imprecatory is a word that means curse. These psalms are not always just called imprecatory psalms. Sometimes they're called psalms of curse, psalms of vengeance, psalms of wrath. These are psalms that take us a step 
deeper into the depths of the frustration of this world, not just lamenting about the difficulties, but actively angry at the evil that is attacking us. And many times in the imprecatory psalm genre, that anger is expressed by the psalmist cursing their enemies. This doesn't sound very friendly or loving, does it? We have to be careful, and we have to properly understand what's going on in these psalms, what's at stake, and why and how cursing is seen as a good thing. How is that even possible? I would encourage you to look to Psalm 109, and perhaps we may help to figure out a bit of the the issue here. So when we look at Psalm 109, and we look at the beginning of Psalm 109, we don't get much as far as context. All we get at the beginning is, to the choir master, a psalm of David. That's right before verse 1. That's not much to go on. To the choir master reminds us that the book of Psalms is a book of hymns and prayers, a book of songs that congregations of Israelites would have sang, and a book of prayers that congregations of Israelites would have prayed. And so whatever this is, it was, it, was, it was prayed in a public congregation, perhaps one similar to this. People would have pray, prayed this like we just did worship songs. That sounds weird. We'll talk about that. And the second thing that we know of the context is the Psalm of David. It was written by David. If you don't know David, think of the story of David and Goliath. Many people have. If you know David a little better, you know that David would eventually become the king of Israel. And David would reign over Israel as God's chosen king. This David was a just man, a man after God's own heart. He had his flaws as all people do. But he was a man after God's own heart. And whatever he's doing here, it's coming from a place of worship to God. And we'll see that. So, Without further ado, let's jump into this. Psalm 109. If we read the first five verses, they give us a good introduction and a good explanation of the problem of the psalm. Please read Psalm 109, verses 1 through 5 with me. It says this, Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. The first thing that stands out for me is the very first verse. This is a prayer that David is is giving to God. And he he starts out with a desired command. Be not silent. Speak into this situation. Who's he talking to? Oh God of my praise. He's talking to the God that is close and that he has reason to worship and reason to love. He trusts this God, whoever this God may be. We know this God as Yahweh. But the God he's talking to is one that he trusts, one that he loves, one that he thinks and he believes will help him in some way, shape, or form. It's the first thing that stands out. The second thing is the problem here. 
Wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. Speaking against me with lying tongues, they encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. Notice that line. Listen to this. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. This is not just a person that David is being a jerk to and that person in suit will be a jerk back. If you want people to not like you, be a jerk. But David here is trying to treat this person with love. In exchange for my love, they hate me. He's following the, 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 the example or the advice that we give our children when they have to deal with bullies at school. Kill them with kindness. But here it's not working. This enemy is whomever it may be. We don't know. Is rewarding him evil for good. This is a frustrating place to be in. Many of us have felt like we've been in this place before. Where we're saying, why are you even mad at me in the first place? I'm trying, to, I'm trying my best here. You're not really making this easy for me. It's a frustrating place. But one of the first indicators between looking for God's justice versus our revenge is this. Justice makes us love our enemy. Revenge makes us hate our enemy. God's justice looks at his enemies as still a justice that he wants to make them right by destroying the sin within them. God desires that all would be saved and none would perish, though he knows that may not always be the case. And in suit, when we are pursuing the good justice, the good making things right that God desires, we show love to those that are against us, not hate. With my opponent in wrestling, I did not love him in any way, shape, or form. I did not care for his well-being, even in the slightest. He gave me no reason to. Many times, people won't give us reason to. But we are required to show love, even to our enemies, especially to our enemies, no matter what they've done. And that's hard, because people do mean things. People say mean things. People treat people like garbage sometimes. But good justice, godly justice, shows love in the face of all evil. That's our first distinction. Continuing on, we get to verses 6 through 15. And this is where we get to the really hairy, the really complex part. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm getting over a, a cough and a sickness. but <clears throat> This is where we get to the really difficult part. And the reason why this type of psalm stumps so many people, especially people in 21st century USA where... In the grand scheme of things, we face little to no persecution comparatively to others. So after this response, after David lays out the problem, he gets to this place. Verse 6 through verse 15. I'm just going to read this. Appoint a wicked man against him 
Let an accuser stand at his right, right side. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Woe. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May the strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. Woe. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. I'll say it again. Woe. Originally this week, Pastor John was going to lead worship. I want to thank Matt Kirkland for stepping up and helping out last second when Pastor John and his family are a little sick right now, and so they weren't able to come in. But I challenged Pastor John. I challenged him this week. I said, find me a worship song that has some of these lines in it. I challenged him. I said, try to find it. Try your best. And I'm sure Matt could say that there's not many out there. I mean, you know, our, our, you are not a God created by human hands. You know, all the, that's, that's great. You know, great is thy faithfulness. That's beautiful. King of kings, majesty, that's awesome. You don't see anybody saying, may his days be few. May his children be fatherless. His wife a widow. That's not a worship song. These aren't Instagram Bible verses. These aren't Hobby Lobby Bible verses. These aren't coffee mug verses. You don't see someone hand you, get you a coffee mug on Easter and you go, oh, may his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. You don't see that. These aren't happy verses. These are scary verses. Especially when we compare these verses to that of the New Testament, we compare these verses to the words of Jesus and Jesus' command in regards to our enemies. Rhea said, you have heard it both said before to hate your enemies, but I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm going to stretch out on a limb here, but I don't think that this kind of prayer is what Jesus had in mind. So how is this good? How is this good? And maybe even another question you may be wondering is, who are these enemies that David is so upset by that he's putting out all of these curses ranging from may you lose all of your land to may you die to may you even be forgotten? What did this guy do? It would take a lot for me to say these things about somebody. Verses 16 through 20 provide us some insight. For he did not remember to show kindness. This is the enemy. But pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. 
He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. If we look ahead to verse 22, David associates himself as I and the poor and the needy. So whomever this enemy is, this enemy is seeking out David, not just seeking him out to say mean things about him, but he's seeking him out to destroy him, to remove him from the earth, to make him no longer a problem. We don't know who this enemy is. It could be a lot of different people. David had a lot of enemies. But we have to be cautious filling in that blank that the Bible doesn't. But we see that this person is putting him to death, and it says that it is he loved to curse. This guy loved to curse. I think of curse. I think of swearing at him. I'm like, well, that's not, I mean, that's not great, but is it worth all this? But that's not the intention of that word. He loved to curse. That curse isn't like someone, you know, put, saying bad words to somebody, cussing at someone, swearing at someone. Maybe it's a wizard doing a spell and putting a curse on. I don't know. It's not that type of curse. This word curse has a specific other meaning. It has a meaning of removing somebody, literally removing them from a place of safety. This isn't just saying mean things. This is an enemy actively trying to remove David from a place of safety, from a place of peace, from a place of love, from a place of compassion, to a place of danger to a place of destruction. This enemy is solely, wholeheartedly seeking to destroy David. He's out to kill him. That provides us understanding, but not an answer, right? That fills in some pieces of the puzzle, but it doesn't say, okay, well, that's the reason why this is okay. Or how this could possibly be okay. And something else we have to remember is we're in the Old Testament. We have not gotten to the teaching of Jesus at this time. And when David is looking at how to interact with his enemies, he's not looking forward to the book of Matthew. That's not going to happen for another thousand years. We have to remember the Bible that David had at this time. David didn't have the book of Psalms completed. That more than likely wasn't completed until after the exile to Babylon. Several 400-ish years after this time. He didn't have the book of Psalms. He didn't have Isaiah. He didn't even have 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, the Chronicles, Esther. He didn't have these different books. He would have had the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those books we all get caught up in when we try to read through the Bible in a year. That was his Bible. And if we specifically look at Deuteronomy, we see that the system of punishment was very different for the Israelites in the Old Testament than it is for Christians in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 19, 
Deuteronomy chapter 19, it's talking about what you're supposed to do concerning crimes. If someone commits a crime, how they're supposed to react, what we're supposed to, what somebody is supposed to do with witnesses and, and putting testimony against that and making someone come, be known as guilty or innocent for a crime they may have or may have not commit. And the star verse in Deuteronomy 19 is verse 19. And it says that if somebody commits a crime, in this case it's the event of being a false witness, it says this, it says, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This was a different ethical system than we see in the New Testament. It could be characterized by the almost sounding cliche phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and a life for a life. And we see a bit of that in this psalm. We see that in verses 17, 18, this whole section we're in. It says, he loved to curse. He cursed people. Let curses come upon him. He loved to do this. May this happen to him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He never encouraged, built up, helped people. Let nobody help him in return for his crimes, for the evil acts that he does. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water. Listen to the expressions here, the metaphors here. It sounds foreign to us, but in a way it's compelling. He says, and then the part that changes the whole picture for us is verse 20. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord. From the Lord. If you remember in Deuteronomy 19, verse 19, it said that, that the end of the people, they are supposed to punish somebody. David doesn't say that. Nowhere in David nor anywhere else in any imprecatory psalm does any author say, God, let me hurt this person. God, let me curse this person, kill this person, destroy this person for destroying me. You can check that. Every single psalm that could be considered in the genre of cursing and precatory psalms, it is God that destroys the evil. Not man. It's not our job to enact these punishments. That's God's job. Anybody that puts that into their own power is throwing God off of his throne and saying, I know better. And it is wrong, it is wicked, it is sin. But we still want evil to be paid for. There's still this desire in David for this evil to be destroyed. That brings us to our second point of the difference between justice versus revenge. Justice makes us want evil to be paid for. Revenge makes us pay evil with evil. Do you see the difference? Going back to my story with this wrestler named Marcus is, he hit me, he attacked me, he insulted me, he treated me like dirt, and what did I do? I did the exact same thing to him. I fought fire 
with fire. I became that which I sought to destroy. If I could say it that elegantly, I guess. And this is one that we need to be careful of. That we need to be careful of. Excuse me. Hitting things. Because when we see evil in this world, we react quickly. And many times we can react without thinking it through. And so we see somebody else do something evil and we respond in suit. Someone yells at me, I'm going to yell at them. Someone insults me, well, I'm going to insult them. Someone gossiped about me, I can gossip about them. Someone posted something on Facebook about something I believe in, I'm going to post something on Facebook making fun of what they believe in. Fighting fire with fire doesn't destroy fire. Justice makes us want evil to be paid for. That's good. Keep being mad at evil. That's a good thing. Revenge, though, makes us pay evil with evil. In the next section, verses 21 through 29, we get a very personal interaction that David has with God in his prayer. And this action, this, this section continues to support this thought that God is the one that does these curses, not us. Read with me verses 21 through 29. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. Listen to the, again, the metaphors here are Confusing, but in a way, they're compelling. It sounds weird, but it sounds, it catches your eye. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. A locust is a giant grasshopper, very common to Israel in the Middle East, even still today. And they're a scourge to plants. They would come in swarms and eat entire farms and plants and countrysides and go to the next. And so farmers would develop the habit, and this still happens today, where they would go to their olive trees or their fig trees or whatever was planted there, and they would go to the branches and shake them, and the locusts would... David says, I am so weak that even that shakes me off. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt. With no fat. David here is not in a good place. 
David here is dealing with the effects of the stress, of the struggle, of the suffering, of the fear that happens when your life is in danger. Many of us don't know that feeling. Most of us don't know that feeling. That's a foreign feeling to us. It's hard for us to connect with that. But this is what's at stake for David. And we see multiple times God being the bringer of, this, of, this, of these punishments against these enemies. Verse 21. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast is lo- love is good. Deliver me. Verse 26, help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Verse 27, let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Are you convinced? I hope so. The other piece of this puzzle that we have to wrestle with is found in verse 21. Deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Not for me, not for my safety, but for your name. There's something more on the table here for God than just keeping David alive. We have to remember who David is and his importance in the story of the Bible. From the second that David is on the scene, he is anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel and promised that he will be the king of Israel. Israel at this time is very divided. It's very divided. But he is the one who's supposed to be king to bring everybody together under one nation. And even so, if we continue in the story of David, we know of something called the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant is something that happens in 2 Samuel about chapter 8 or 9. I can't remember exactly when it is. But it's when God forms a covenant, an agreement with David. And God promises David that his line will exist on the throne of Israel forever. And that his, his offspring shall generation after generation inherit this throne for the nation of Israel. And that in one day, there will be an offspring of David that will reign on the throne for eternity. That will have a reign that shall last forever. Now the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ of Nazareth fulfills this. Through him coming to this earth completely man, completely God, living a sinless life, deserving perfect fellowship with God, dies on the cross and pays for your sin and for mine. And through rising from the dead, shows his power over all creation, over all evil, and puts himself on the throne as the king of kings. With the future promise that he will reign as king forever. If David dies, that's all gone. If David dies, God's promise is void. This isn't just protecting somebody. This is protecting the Davidic line, which will bring the Messiah, which will save the world. That is the way on here. And David, I think, feels this weight. 
He's saying, God, this is your promise you've made to me. Your name is at stake here. Save me so that you are still good, so that your promises still exist, so that you are still God. The humility that David has here is captivating. And it brings us to our third point of the difference between justice and revenge. Justice humbles us. Revenge prides us. I keep going back to my story with this friend on the wrestling team. Not a friend, but this individual on the wrestling team, Marcus. Because when I was in that point and I got him back, I felt good. Have you ever had one of those moments where you stick it to somebody, you get your revenge, and you almost feel you're like, ooh, that feels good. It feels good for a while. But it doesn't last. That, that, that good feeling, that, 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 that reason why we have the expression of the sweet, sweet taste of revenge, that's there, but that's not... That's not how God desires us to feel. It feels good maybe momentarily, just as all sin does. All sin feels good momentarily, but give it enough time and sin destroys us. That pride is our downfall. We're instead seeking true goodness, is relying, seeking true justice, seeking true destruction of evil, is realizing that we can't do it on our own. That we can't do it, period. We can try, but we will fail. We will fail if our pursuit of God's justice is absent of God. Sounds simple when you say it like that, but how often do we do that? True goodness in this world means trusting in God. Fighting for justice fighting for the destruction of evil, destruction of enemies. But realizing that we can't do that on our own. We are fools if we think that. And then we get to the conclusion, verses 30 and 31. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Verse 1 began with praising God. Our intro is praise to God. Our conclusion is praise to God. Praise to God for a number of reasons. First off, I will praise him in the midst of the throng. The throng is the, the tension point, the, the, the evil, the, the difficult spot of suffering that we find ourselves in. I will praise him in the midst of the struggle. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. This is a present tense promise. David's still in this situation David's still fighting for his life. He's still at a place of ultimate weakness. But in the present tense, in the that, in the that time tense, 
He says, I'm struggling, but I know God's going to do this. He has confidence that this God will remain faithful to his promises. He has confidence that in that moment, as he's writing this, God is right next to him, protecting him, guiding him, remaining faithful to his promises. As we find ourselves in the struggles of life, God is right next to us. He is with us. He is guiding us. He is remaining faithful to his promises to us. Our fourth and final distinction between justice and revenge. Justice makes us look to God. Revenge makes us look to ourselves. It's a similar Similar point to the previous one. But here at this point, at the end of the conclusion with these praises to God, it is important for us to remember that looking back to God shows us our ultimate example of what justice means, of what it means for evil to be destroyed. And for us today, we need look no further than the death and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who showed us the greatest example of the destruction of evil by dying on the cross and paying for your sin and for mine. That pride that holds you down, that, that, that suffering that we struggle with, those problems we put ourselves into, the evil in this world that burdens us. All of that is paid for by the blood of Christ. And by receiving, receiving that truth, it's already happened. We just need to receive it, believe it to be true. Turn from our sins and trust in Christ. At that point, we will know that God has promised us a time when evil will be destroyed. When evil will no longer exist when we will sit in a place of peace, of goodness, of love, of glory to the bringer of all good things, God. And with that, as I'm closing, like I said, this is a hard message and there's no one definite answer for the struggle of imprecatory psalms, but what we know and what is true is that these psalms are an example of God's destruction of evil. And they're an example of man's awareness of evil in this world. And it's good for us to hate evil. It's a good thing. It's a godly thing. But we also have to be careful. All it takes is one wrong Move one wrong word, one mistaken post, one conversation to be self seeking, to be looking for revenge and not looking for justice. The best way to look for justice is to look to the gospel and to trust that God will deliver us and He will make things good. And we can be confident in that. God remained faithful to the promises he made to David. 
He will remain faithful to the promises he's made to us. And we can know what it's like to have justice and no need for revenge.